Well, good day and welcome to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. My name is Lance Ward, and as you know by now, I'm going to take you through some of what we read this week and give you my observations, and hopefully it encourages you to continue making your observations. And don't forget you can download a copy of this podcast in the description, or I'm sorry, a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast, and you can also find that reading plan at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, we're in week 37. This week's readings were Isaiah 45 to 63. In the Psalms, we read 69, 70, and 128. We also read 1 Corinthians 13 through 16, and we started 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. You will notice in Isaiah 45 to 46 the heavy use of what I would call the one true God language. Eight times he says, I am God, and there is no other. One of the main issues with the straying of God's people was not atheism, nor was it a lack of religious life in general, you see. It was not even a total forgetfulness of God in most cases. Their problem was that they often brought in other gods. They gave in to the worldly temptation of sharing God with others. Like their forefathers who cried out, Give us a human king like all the other nations— Israel and Judah just could not be content with the Lord as their only God. The ways of the nations around them were just too enticing. And so time and time again, the Lord through Isaiah mocks the foolishness of being on the same level as gods who really weren't gods at all. It is remarkable, isn't it, that God's own people could not be content with the God who created and sustained all things, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and gave them a place of rest they didn't even deserve. But then again, when I read this book, and maybe you are like me, I notice how much I can be just like they were. Maybe we want more out of this life than the gracious, abundant, infinite gifts of God and His salvation so undeserved. And so maybe we have our own set of gods that we would like to share with God. It's it's a common problem in history. Well, in chapters 52 and 53, as you read these, you are probably very familiar with them because it is the news of a suffering servant yet to come, one of the clearest prophecies we have of Christ on the cross. Few parts of our Old Testament speak as clearly to the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has become our substitute, where it says, for example, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 11, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. We know this now in hindsight. Our Savior, spoken of in Isaiah 52 and 53, has paid the price we owe, and therefore when we trust in Him, we can be sure that our guilt, as great as it has been, has been removed. And who needs other gods when you have that? We also see a lot of references to hope, as we talked about a little last week in this section of Isaiah. Let me just read some of those examples, starting in chapter 49. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. My salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee from them. 54.8, I hid my face from you for a moment, but I will have compassion on you with everlasting love. Later on, though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. 
Let the wicked, he says later on, let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. What follows that is a common thing we hear in Romans. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, which is likely a reference to God's compassion a grace we have never deserved and yet so freely was bestowed on us. And when we, when we understand or when we begin to grasp the magnitude of that grace, then we can say, God's thoughts are not my thoughts, because we would not act that way if we had been as wronged as he has. It reminds me the way, uh, of the way Larry Crabb once defined grace. He said, grace is unreasonable kindness. And that really is what grace is. It just doesn't make sense almost almost logically, and yet God is so glad to bestow it upon us. In chapter 60, we, we see eight references to light and shining, and it begins, Arise and shine, for your light has come. One day a man will indeed come after Isaiah and prove that he is indeed the light of the world. In the Psalms, in Psalm 69, notice David's heavy use of metaphor in expressing the dark depths of his soul. He starts with the request, save me, God. Then, until the next request in verse 13, David laments when that request is rescue me. But in between those two, he pours out his heart to God in lament. Much of this psalm, if you noticed with me, is pretty graphic. But that's okay, because these are words between David and the Lord. And because he knows he can trust the Lord and that the Lord will not abandon him, he holds nothing back. There is a time and a place for lament like this, and it is often wise to just let it remain between us and the Lord. There is little need to constantly air out grievances for public consumption, especially when we get down to the nitty-gritty. Lament is for trusted friends, though, and that is who God is to David. I see a pretty good synopsis of our lives and our souls apart from Christ and His Spirit in the last verse of Psalm 70. I am oppressed and needy, Hurry to me, O God. You are my help and deliverer. Lord, do not delay. This is the kind of prayer one might pray when they come to faith in Christ. But interestingly, it's the same kind of thing we may often say as we're God's children already, at least this side of glory. We are constantly in need, aren't we? We find ourselves often helpless in situations where the reason we pray is because we can't do anything about it. We need God's rescue. Psalm 70 is a great model of this. 1 Corinthians 13 is quite interesting when read in its context, isn't it? And the Corinthian church here was in a conflict over a number of things, including which gifts were better than others. That's the present context. And it's in this midst that Paul defines what the love of God is, what it looks like. If we take nothing away from this, we can say that love, biblically defined, is not a syrupy, feelings-oriented type of thing. Love is hard. It requires great strength, determination, and stamina. It sometimes calls for difficult choices. Love in its truest form is never for the timid of soul. If you pay enough attention to the way the world sees love, however, Paul's definition has been distorted, sentimentalized, and virtually ignored. It has been reduced to good feelings that come and go with the tides. And in the context of a church where rivalry and dissension seemed normal, Paul breaks through and says, you are called to love, and this is what love looks like. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs, on and on. In other words, love is not about getting your own way. It's often about giving up our own way. If you've never read through the Bible before or through Corinthians before, you may have found yourself quite alarmed in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, especially verses 33 through 36, Paul's words on women being silent in the churches. This provides another great benefit to us of reading through the Bible, because when you see a passage like this, and when you read it, just as when I've read it for the first time well, a long time ago, you, it should cause you to stop and go, wait a second here. What is this, what is this saying? What's the context? What's going on? And, and there are lots of resources out there to help us sort through the different views of this troubling passage. But again, I will insist, it's better to have read it for yourself and wrestled with it yourself than to have someone come along maybe a few years later and catch you off guard and say, what about this passage? You believe this? So just another great reason to read through Scripture because it forces us to deal with the more difficult passages. On another note, I'd like to ask you a question. What if someone asked you out of the blue, hey, what is the gospel? Could you give them a quick elevator speech? Could you fit your answer if you were to write it down on a 3 by 5 card? In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, Paul provides a clear and concise answer to that question, what is the gospel? Notice here how the gospel is good news. It's about something that's already been done, something done by and through one person, something done in history. You see, the gospel is not really my story or your story. It's Christ's story, even though our story can be interwoven with that. But the gospel in its simplest form is simply the account of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me. And that takes a lot of the pressure off, doesn't it, when it comes to evangelism especially. We need not be pushy or persuasive. We primarily just need to report the news, much like we might tell anyone something we heard about on the 6 o'clock news. Well, we started 2 Corinthians this week, and that's where we'll um, lead off at the end of this podcast. And, and I wonder, when is the last time you heard a sermon series on the book of 2 Corinthians? Now, I've been in several churches in my lifetime, and I don't think I've ever heard a series that goes through this book. And that's almost a shame because it has become one of my personal favorite New Testament books, and I hope you get as much out of 2 Corinthians as I have. Now, this letter does contain a lot of familiar passages that no doubt we've heard quoted in sermons and Sunday school lesson. Yet as a whole, it, it seems to be one of the Bible's most overlooked letters. In chapter 1, you probably noticed a lot of references to suffering and comfort. We'll talk more next week about why these themes are so prevalent to this, in this book and important to this book. I hope you enjoy reading through it, though, and I have a feeling there might be many of you who have never read this book all the way through, and I promise you it will be a real treat just to read it through. And when you tune in next week, I'll explain more of the background for this book so that you can have a better understanding of why Paul says some of the things that he does. Speaking of next week, we will finish out Isaiah. We'll read 64 through 66. We'll take a look back at 2 Kings 21 through 23, 2 Chronicles 33 through 35. We'll look at the prophet Nahum. We'll also look at Psalm 71, one of my personal favorites, 73, 149, and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians again, chapters 2 through 6. Look forward to talking to you next week. I hope you have a great week in reading this next week's passages, and join us back next week as we discuss it. Thank you. Thank you.